Hola, ¿cómo estás? Y bienvenidos a la Grit Fitness and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sanchez. And today we are going to pick back up right where we've been leaving off at the end of every other uh, podcast episode. We're talking about the 30 most commonly believed fitness health and uh, fitness myths and misconceptions. And we're just going to dive right into it today. We're picking up with myth number 21. And that is to, in order to tone, which by the way, hate that word. In order to tone up, you need to perform high repetitions with low weights. Uh, So if you've been listening to our previous installments for these misconceptions and myths and whatnot, you know that we've already touched on this in uh, the the Pilates and yoga, giving you long-toned muscles. Uh, but we're going to talk about this again because it's worth talking about because it's such a commonly believed uh, misconception out there. So first of all, there's no such thing as toning. Being toned means that your body does not have a lot of body fat on it. Therefore, your bulging muscles, your muscles that have a decent amount of lean muscle tissue, they're, they're basically just easier to see. So that makes things like you know your definition and your striations and the cuts, so to speak, in your muscles, it's easier for them to see them. So when your muscles are decently strong and you don't have a lot of fat covering them, you are toned. So there's no definitive way to get toned. You can't just pick up light weights and perform endless amounts of reps, and then that's a specific method to tone your body. It doesn't work like that. The only way to get toned is to decrease your body fat and to get stronger, build up a little bit of muscle. Now, the only way to do this is to eat better and lift weights and lift weights with the intentions of getting stronger. So if you're not familiar with strength training, there are certain rep ranges that can elicit certain adaptations within your body. Spoiler, none of them are tone, toning whatsoever. So let's start at the very low end of the spectrum. So you have zero to five repetitions. So let's say you perform a barbell back squat and you perform one to five repetitions. If you do that, you are basically gearing towards strength and power. That is the goal you are trying to chase if you are performing zero to five repetitions um, perform. So if you're, you're loading the barbell and you're going really, really heavy, your goal is strength. If you're going for lighter weight and you're absolutely moving it as fast as you possibly can, that is going for power. Okay. So zero to five reps, you're going for strength or power six to eight reps. You're going for mostly strength and some hypertrophy or muscle growth, eight to 12 reps. You're typically going for your hypertrophy or your your muscle growth and some strength um, going up to that high, you still will get stronger, especially if you're a beginner. And then 12 reps and beyond is typically reserved for your metabolic endurance and hypertrophy. So again, being toned is about being strong. So people looking to get that toned, decreased body fat look should be emphasizing compound movements. So compound means multi-joint, so things that move multiple joints at one time, like a squat, like a deadlift, like a row, um, things of that nature, for about five to 12 reps in a given set. This 
should make up a majority of your strength training with a smaller percentage of the reps that you perform being in the 12 plus range. Now, is it totally acceptable if you're on a fat loss program to do sets of 20, 25, 30? Like, absolutely, yes. So, you know, there might there might come a time in your program where you uh, reach a plateau and you've been doing five to 12 reps for months on end and whatnot. And sometimes you just need to shake it up a little bit. Uh, and performing high reps can be a fantastic way to switch things up build a little bit more muscle and help kind of break out of that fat loss plateau. Plus it can serve as a fantastic uh, metabolic finisher just to get your heart rate up, which will help burn more calories, which can help burn more fat. Um, so having no, you know, now that you know all that and what rep range will actually dictate the goal that you are working towards, you absolutely have to focus on getting stronger if you want to get toned, so to speak. And just know, I hate that phrase. And the only reason I'm using it is so that a majority of the people know what I'm talking about. When I use the phrase get toned or tone up, I basically mean decrease body fat. Okay. Now that you know what the rep ranges mean, none of that means jack shit if your diet sucks. Uh, so strong muscles aside, you, you won't see any tone, cuts, striations, definition, anything along those lines. Uh, with excess body fat over your muscles. So if your diet sucks, getting toned is not, po it's impossible. It is literally impossible. You have a better chance of uh, like winning a cage fight with a like mother jaguar who knows you stole her kittens. Like she's going to kill you for sure. And you're naked. You have no weapons. Naked fighting a jaguar. You have a better chance of winning a naked jaguar fight than you do burning fat if your diet sucks. So just know that. Just know that. Next time you go to eat a Twinkie and you're like, I wonder if this is burning me fat, just imagine you're fighting a Jaguar naked, um, and it'll set you straight for sure. So you, you can't get toned unless you have a strong foundation of lean muscle mass, and you can't get toned if your diet sucks. You have to be in a calorie deficit. You have to be burning fat, and you have to be working towards getting stronger and building that lean muscle tissue. And you know what I've learned about doing podcasts like this? Like you get your mouth gets so dry talking from like I'm I don't like to talk. I'm a naturally introverted person. So like doing this and talking. So how do you extroverts keep your like mouth like wet? It's it's so like I've gotten mouth right now. I've only been talking for like 10 minutes. Anyway, myth number 22 or 2 for today. Lifting weights is dangerous for children. So this one uh, I heard growing up, my dad didn't want me to start lifting weights until I was like in high school because he believed that lifting weights would somehow stunt my growth and I would walk around and be just uh, you know a little shell of the self that I man that I would have become had I not lifted weights because somehow it would uh, stunt my growth. And, um, you know, my growth plates would be broken or damaged and it'd stop working. And uh, it, it, it really just does not work that way. If the whole notion that lifting weights for children would stunt their growth, every single kid who participates in team sports growing up that involves sprinting, jumping, cutting, um, changing directions, landing, 
they would probably not get any taller than four foot six by the time they reached adulthood. And you know why? It's because those type of movements, the sprinting, jump, the aggressively changing directions, skipping, hopping, um, those type of movements that are routinely performed during team sports, um, they subject children's do- or joints to impacts and compressive forces up to like 10 times more than lifting weights ever would. I think it's I think the number is like 7 to 10 times uh, the body weight of the kid who's going through these things. So if kid weighs 100 pounds, if he goes to cut on one leg, like potentially he could be loading that leg with 700 pounds of force. Now, I've been around the block a little bit. I've never met a kid who could squat 700 pounds in middle school. So like, first of all, that's absurd. That's bananas. So you know their joints are capable of, of lifting weights um, and, uh, you know, the kids who play team sports growing up, n- none of them have stunted growth from what I know, and they're routinely encouraged to participate in team sports as a kid. So like that argument just goes right out the window. Um, but then you factor in that most, um, most team sports for kids, the injury rates among those sports are drastically higher in team sports compared to strength training uh, alone. And 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 Evan, uh, Jesus, I just had a brain fart. Um, anyway, it's been proven since um, that this myth was believed that strength training actually does not cause any sort of damage to the growth plates in uh, kids, nor does it have any sort of negative effect on their final adulthood height. Um, in fact. Some studies suggest that strength training might actually stimulate growth instead of stunting it. So the the epiphyseal plates, if my knowledge dating back to kinesiology and exercise phys in college serves me correctly, the, the epiphyseal plates on the end of these bones, the growth plates, so to speak, strength training actually stimulates those to grow, resulting in more efficient, fuller heights, I guess, uh, by the time these guys reach adulthood. I know it's crazy, right? Um, so, you know, when you think about it, a vast majority of like all the injuries that children sustain while strength training, and there's not a lot of them for sure, are usually due to improper use of equipment, um, lack of supervision from uh, someone who's qualified. So unfortunately, like a lot of the weight rooms in high schools and whatnot, it's basically just like the math teacher who's doing this as like a part-time gig to make an extra 20 bucks for an hour after school. Um, So, you know, obviously if you get a bunch of like 14 year old boys in a weight room who, you know, testosterone is surging and their egos are huge and they're very prideful and they're very competitive, you know, they're going to push each other and under horrible supervision without the proper technique and form and kind of know how, like, of course kids might be able to get hurt in that sense. But when you take away those factors, you put them under the eyes of someone who knows what they're doing um, and they know how to use the equipment and they know how to move their bodies. Like strength training is probably one of the safest things you could ever do uh, in terms of like a physical activity for kids. So, you know, when you train your kid or if you're working with kids or you have a son or a daughter, it's always a good idea to slow cook them when training okay so just like how you can cook food you can pan fry it you know in some hot oil takes like five minutes boom like something like asparagus or something like that or you can get a nice crock pot or like a smoker and you can slow cook low and slow for multiple hours it takes a long long time but the end product is usually amazing you have to slow cook kids 
when it comes to training. You have to take the time to make sure their technique is flawless. You have to take the time to know um, that they're proficient with all the fundamental movement, um, you know, uh, movements, uh, body weight exercises. So things like can you squat, can you lunge, can you hinge at the hips? Like those things should just be automatic for kids. And you don't have to rush kids into using heavy weights. So kids, it's been proven that kids can use as little as their what is it? 40% of their one rep max, um, and still see improvements in strength and endurance and muscle mass, whatever it is. And if you're not familiar with that number, 40% of your one rep max is basically the equivalent of you picking a weight that you can perform like 20 to 25 reps with comfortably. It's not a lot at all. So the next time you're working with kids, you need to make sure that they should be very comfortable and capable of handling their bodies in space before they start pushing uh, any kind of heavy external weights. So again, that comes back to the slow cooking idea. You know, can they shift their weight back properly in a hip hinge uh, without turning it into a squat? Can they perform a squat without coming up onto their toes or rounding their back? Can they hold a basic plank without letting their hips sink down to the floor? Uh, can they perform one strict push-up without looking like they're melting? You know, these are the things that you should be concerned about when it comes to strength training for kids. As long as you're doing those things, you're slow cooking the kids, you're making sure that they're doing things correctly and you're not in any sort of rush to get to heavy weights. And heavy is very relative from kid to kid. Um, you know, some kids might be able to handle a certain load on a certain exercise. Some, some kids might be comfortable with body weight. It's a, it's a case-by-case scenario. But as long as you're taking all these things into account, Strength training is not dangerous for your kid. I'm going to endorse that 100,000%. Uh, strength training is not dangerous as long as it's done correctly. Don't rush into anything. Take your time. Perform everything incredibly well. Technique is above everything with the kids. And you just need to make sure that they're having fun. You'd be surprised at how much of a factor that is when it comes to creating buy-in with the kids, creating consistency, uh, and creating something that they enjoy being a part of. That will help build lifelong habits and a mindset towards just overall health in general. So strength training is not dangerous for kids as long as you're not a jackass about it. Drink. Alrighty then. Number 23, there is a textbook way to perform every single exercise. And this one I feel like is very common. It's a common belief amongst a lot of people because you know why? There are textbooks out there telling people how to exercise. So of course someone is going to say, well, yeah, there's a textbook that I just read that shows me how to perform this exercise. So of course there's a textbook way to perform every exercise, Chris. Like what a dumb myth, you're so stupid. So what you could do right now is, unless you're driving, don't do it then. I don't endorse that. Go to the old Google on your phone, on your computer, on your tablet, whatever it is, and just, just Google how to squat. And you're going to get precisely 400,000 uh, hits on how to execute the perfect squat. And for the most part, every single one of those instructional videos, uh, texts, whatever you're reading, pictures, Pretty much all of them are going to say the same exact thing. Chest is up, 
push your butt back, make sure your knees don't cave in, um, stomach is braced, um, you know, all that good stuff. And all those cues are correct. I've used those cues with every single client I've ever worked with for the most part because none of them are incorrect. So in that sense, there is a textbook way to perform every exercise. But obviously, this wouldn't be on the list if I wasn't going to give you a reason why there isn't a textbook way to perform every single exercise. So those those cues, the major cues, chest up, butt back, knees out, and I'm still referring to a squat, they're all correct. They're almost applicable to everyone, anytime, anywhere who's doing a squat. I could tell you those cues, and I would be correct in telling you those things. So think of those as general guidelines as far as how to complete a squat. However, there are several and a bunch of minor cues and subtleties that can differ for tons of people because everyone is a special, unique little snowflake. You are special, listener, okay? You are special. I'm telling you that right now. Your mom told you that, and it's true. You are you for a reason. No one else is ever going to be you, so you do you, boo, and you do it up quite well. So the, the minor cues, you know, for a squat, should you point your toes forward or can you have them slightly pointed outward? Can you squat to parallel? Should you squat to parallel? How about going below it? Should you go ass to grass? I've heard quarter squats are pretty bad. Should you should you squat above parallel? What about a barbell back squat? That's that's I've heard that's the king of exercises. Do you absolutely have to do a barbell back squat? Like can I are there any other variations or is that just the king of all exercises? So so there's a bunch of little differences um, for every single exercise that can be addressed are going to be different for every single person. So, you know, you know, textbooks will tell you that an exercise should look a certain way, but in reality, it, it doesn't have to. Um, like I said, everyone's special. Everyone has their own genetic makeup, their own bone structures, their own joint laxity or level of joint looseness, uh, biomechanical differences, training ages, chronological ages, injury histories, like all of these things are going to affect the execution of exercises. And not all of them are going to look 100% alike. So, you know, if you ever have a trainer that tells you you have to point your toes forward or you have to have your feet shoulder width apart or you have to do it this certain way because that's the way it's done, leave. Tell him he's an idiot, you know? Like, he's clearly very inexperienced. has no idea what he's talking about. So the reason of we do it this way because that's the way it's been done for so long is just such a stupid way of thinking about things. If we, if we did everything how it used to be done in the past, we would still be living in like 1830 and not taking cars anywhere and uh, horse and buggies and whatever they used to do olden times. Like we wouldn't advance anyway. So obviously there are different ways to do things that are going to be better for the individual and that is especially true for, for exercising. So let's talk about the squat. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very solid guideline for everyone, if they've never done it before, to place your feet shoulder width apart, toes pointed forward, squat down until the crease of your hips is parallel to the tops of your knees, keep your chest up, feet nice and flat. Like that's a solid description of how to do a squat. But if anyone who ever exercised was, uh, you know, built on an assembly line with predetermined bone structures and genetics and injury histories, this would be great. Like we would have no issues, but let's, let's review everything that can be different within a person that can dictate how they might squat differently. So you have your thigh bone, your femur. That can be a lot longer in someone. So you take a seven-footer in the NBA, compare it to a person who's five foot one and they do gymnastics. Obviously, they're going to be a lot shorter. 
their thigh bone is going to be different length. That is going to affect how they squat. The taller person is going to have uh, definitely a harder time dropping down into the squat position because he's got physics working against him. That femur is so long, so when you drop down into a squat, like he's going to have to either shift his knees a lot uh, more far forward than the five foot one person. It's just going to look and feel a lot different. So if you cue those people the same way, you're going to get two totally different squats. The length of your shin bone can uh, vary how you squat. And you combine that with the length of your thigh bone, two totally different variances in those, you're going to get two totally different squats. How about the placement of your hip socket on the pelvis? So does your socket point forward? Does it point downward? Is it placed more laterally out to the side? So all of those things are going to affect um, how deep can you squat uh, the stance. So, you know, if you have someone who has a forward pointed socket, so they're like more on the, uh, the front facing part of their pelvis as opposed to the sides, they might be able to squat ass the grass no problem. But if you get someone who perhaps has them more laterally, um, maybe they have to take a wider stance because that's what their hip socket dictates. Uh, the depth of their socket. So how deep? Do you have a deep hip socket? Do you have a shallow hip socket? What about the angle of your femoral neck? So basically the end of your thigh bone that connects into the hip socket. Is it at a severe angle? Is there no angle? So those angles are going to affect basically how wide you stand. Some people are going to be more comfortable with a very narrow stance. Some people are going to be more comfortable with a very wide stance just because their femur, the, the neck of their femur, the shallowness or the deepness and the positioning of their hip socket is going to dictate those things. Perhaps you have a bony growth on the head of your femur or the hip socket itself from injuries, from day-to-day -day activities, from sports that you've played. So your body adapts to the uh, demands that are placed on it. And a lot of times you can actually get uh, bony overgrowths from overactivity, inactivity, like whatever it may be, and that can affect your range of motion. Uh, injury history, kind of going off of the same things that we just talked about. Maybe one hip totally got screwed up in a skiing incident or something like that. And then you have to think about the asymmetries between the right and the left side for everything we just mentioned. It is 100% possible for someone to have their hip socket on the left side pointed more forward and then some uh, the, the socket on the right side to be pointed downward and more more laterally so like if your your bone structure can actually dictate how you squat big time and if you're trying to force your squat stance in a particular way uh, just because that's the way the textbook tells you to do it I, well i got news for you you're gonna have a tough time squatting because you've got all these anatomical and structural differences going on and having the perfect squat is it's just a relative term to every single person. So take me for example. I know for a fact I can't flex my right hip up as um, as high as my left unless I take my right hip out just a little smidgen. So I like I've never gotten an MRI or an X-ray, so I can't confirm this or whatnot. But I'd be willing to bet that perhaps maybe I've got a difference in um, maybe the way my femur is shaped on the right side. Maybe my hip socket's a little uh, differently angled on the right side. Uh, perhaps I have a bony overgrowth from the years I've played soccer. Like who knows? So I know for me, like a comfortable squat stance is. Um, toes pointed out a little bit and even slightly more on my right side. Uh, and that's, that's good for me. So, you know, is it possible 
to, you know, do one foot angled one way and another foot the, the other way? Like, absolutely. The, the best thing that I can tell you is whatever exercise you're about to perform, and I'm going to keep talking about squats because that's just what we've been talking about, is follow the guidelines for general general setup and technique and then play around with it a little bit, you know, turn your toes out a little bit, um, see what's comfortable for you before you actually start squatting. So there's, there's, there are textbook guidelines to performing exercises, but it's not applicable to every single person. There's going to be little minor differences from person to person. All right, let's take another drink. All right. So next one. Myth number 24, pre-workout supplements are necessary to have incredible training sessions. Now, I feel like pre-workout is much more prevalent among the younger crowd. So I would say like the 35 and younger crowd, they feel like they enjoy training. They like pushing themselves and they want that little boost to get the most out of every single workout. So they get these pre-workout supplements, which are basically just a mixture of caffeine and then all sorts of magical goodness that they claim they cram into these products. And it makes you feel great. You get all hyped up, you get energy, you get jitters, you get itchy neck like your Tyrone Biggums from Chappelle Show, and you seemingly have a fantastic workout because it feels like you're on you know low levels of kind of like hard drugs for the most part. Um... And that's why they've gained a lot of notoriety in the past few years. So, you know, the the caffeine, the branched-chain amino acids, the, the beta-alanine, the creatine, all of these things can help with muscular endurance, provide an energy boost, uh, kind of help foster an anabolic uh, muscle-building environment. So as you're going through and as you're recovering, you know, these things uh, are going to give you a boost in performance, so to speak. But... Just like any type of stimulant that you may take, over the course of time, your body will eventually start to build up a tolerance to the stimulating effects of these pre-workouts, much like it does for coffee or alcohol after continued consumption. So this means that the energy-boosting, performance-enhancing effects that you feel after taking one scoop of pre-workout might not necessarily feel the same way after four months of continued use. So what do you have to do? Talk to any coffee drinker out there. After one cup doesn't really do it for you anymore, you got to bump it up to two. And then after a while, two cups maybe doesn't do it for you anymore, so you got to bump it up to three. And then before you know it, you're drinking seven cups of coffee before you actually start to feel the effects of the caffeine coursing through your system. Pre-workout essentially is no different. Sure, you may still be getting some very beneficial things um, in the form of, you know, micronutrients and the supplements that it provides from you like creatine and branched chain amino acids and stuff like that. But as far as feeling that jittery kind of like amped up feeling, that may start to fade over time. And you may have to start taking one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three scoops of pre-workout just to be able to feel it so you get through it. And honestly, I've seen it before and I know this is extremely common, but um, you know, it's not out of the question for people to abuse pre-workout supplements. And and what I mean by that is that um, a lot of people make the mistake of relying solely on that pre-workout to get them through 
their workout. So they they're feeling like a like a groggy mess one day and they're just like, ah, don't don't worry. I will slam some pre-workout before this workout and I will feel great. But the problem is pre-workouts, supplements in general, they are meant to be the cherry on top of your dietary and lifestyle Sunday. So obviously when you buy a Sunday, you don't go for the cherry on top. You go for the ice cream, you go for the toppings, and then the cherry on top really just makes everything look pretty. And then maybe you just enjoy to eat the cherry at the end, like whatever floats your ice cream boat. Um, but too many people are just relying on the workout, the pre-workout to get them through that training session. And you can really run into a big problem here um, because it's not meant for that. You know, like the, the best pre-workout you will ever take in your life is a good night's sleep and some carbohydrates hands down. Like if you get eight hours of sleep and then you eat some carbs before you work out, I guarantee you, you will feel like a million dollars more so than if you took C4 and NO explode and all the pre-workouts combined into one magical pre-workout. It still would not trump sleep and carbohydrates. Um, so, you know, if you are running into the problem where your sleep and diet kind of suck and you feel like just a rundown bag of shit going into a, a training session, taking a pre-workout to get you through that workout session is basically like putting a bandaid over a problem that requires stitches. Your pre-workout is masking the fact that you have several underlying issues as to why you even need the pre-workout to begin with. And you need to fix those and stop relying on that um, because it's it's really a surefire way to spiral into a continual loop of improperly dealing with your constantly fluctuating energy levels. So, you know, if, if you feel like yourself running into that and you need pre-workout to get you through the workout, I can almost guarantee you've got a sleeping issue and your diet probably sucks and or both. So, you know, at the end of the day, you need to realize that pre-workout supplements can work but only if you've taken care of the larger, more important issues to begin with, meaning your sleep is on point and you're fueling your body the way you should in terms of getting enough carbs and proteins in before you actually start that lifting session. Okay, next up on the schedule. So this next one is one of my favorite ones to talk about because I it, I feel like it's totally the opposite way of a lot of uh, people are thinking about how to go about fat loss, and that is intense jogging or basically intense cardio is the best way to go about your fat-burning journey. Um, so I, I would be guaranteed I would almost guarantee you, if we did like a family feud type survey, you asked 100 regular people on the street, what do you need to do to start losing some weight? And probably one of the top two answers would include jog, run, cardio, something along those lines. So let's put out a public disclaimer. I'm not against cardio. Okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing a little bit of cardio. I actually encourage it a few times a week because it does have some tremendous health benefits as far as like heart health and all that good stuff. So steady state cardio like jogging, like the elliptical, like spinning is without a doubt one of the best go-to methods for tons of people um, when it comes to increasing overall health. There's no there's no debating that. It's easy to do. It's idiot proof. You don't need a trainer to learn how to do it. Um, you basically just, 
you just do it. It's easy, uh, easy to learn and easy to do. And when it comes to fat loss, quite frankly, a lot of people would burn a lot of fat by doing this, um, especially if they're new to exercise, which is why, you know, if your Aunt Susie, who has not done anything in five years, decides to pick up a spin class, I guarantee you she's going to drop three dress sizes in three months. Just guarantee she's going to burn a lot of fat. It's exercise. She's burning calories. Um, it's going to result in, in fat loss. Now, I'm going to talk about jogging specifically for a second because I personally do not like jogging as a go-to exercise modality for a lot of people. Um, And the reason is because for every upside jogging has, it's got about two downsides. So if you're a die-hard runner and cardio is your go-to method for exercising and fat burning, you might want to skip this part because I'm probably going to offend you on some sort of level. But anyway, so it has been proven from studies, from scientists, uh, they basically say that 75% of people who take up jogging, you know, long-term intense running, will at some point sustain a running-related injury. And this is due to the repetitive nature and the small ranges of motion that you go through at the hips, knees, ankles when you are racking up all these miles. So when you, th- when you think about like a, a jogging stride, you're basically taking a very partial range of motion step. You're not bringing your hip all the way up to full hip flexion. You're not getting full hip extension. You're just kind of working in that middle ground for a lot of reps at a very low intensity. Um, And what this can do is it can result in certain muscles becoming overworked while simultaneously inhibiting others. So some muscles are working really hard to perform these constant reps and kind of propel you miles and miles and miles when others aren't working super, super hard because they're not being put through big ranges of motion. And what this can happen or what can, what can happen from this is it basically starts to cause imbalances within the body, strength imbalances, stability imbalances, uh, mobility problems that can lead to nagging aches and pains from your body's constant, um, repetitive motions. And now you're starting to get compensatory movement patterns as a result. So if you didn't understand any of that, don't worry, I'm about to hopefully make uh, some of this make sense. So think about the tires on your car. Okay. If you were to drive your car to and from the same destination every single day, so you're going to and from work every single day, and you're never taking any deviations, you're not making stops at CVS, you're not getting fast food, nothing. It's just like Gus Fring in Breaking Bad when they put the tracker on his car, and then they checked it, And the dude just went to and from work every single day. He didn't go to his secret meth empire, just to and from, and the cops were baffled, okay? That's what you're doing. You're Gus Fring. You're going to and from work every single day. Side note, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad yet, turn this off right now. Turn off the podcast and go binge it. It'll be the best decision you ever made, hands down. Anyway... Okay, so you go to work to and from, you take the same route, same turn, same right turn on Maple, same left turn on uh, Baltic, whatever it is. So as a result, over time, you start doing the same routine. You're turning, it's the same routine every single time. Your car, assuming you are negligent on the basic upkeep on it, uh, it will eventually start to wear unevenly on your tires it will throw off your alignment. Uh, your uh, fuel economy will suffer because you're not putting air on the tires. Um, and it could, you know, these little problems in your car can lead to bigger, more unexpected breakdowns that will cost you a fortune to fix down the road. So 
like you know, I know I know what you're saying. Well, you know, I'm not stupid. I do my my basic upkeep in my car. I get my oil changed and my and my filters changed and my tires rotated and all that good stuff. But here's the thing: when you run constantly, okay, drive to work the same route every single day, a lot of runners do not do the due diligence necessary to in a sense, rotate their tires or fix their alignment. And what I mean by that is they're not doing anything out of the ordinary to get their joints into different ranges of motion. They're not challenging the muscles to go into full hip extension. They're not pushing their glutes to work fully because they're not necessary in order to jog at a steady pace for 30 minutes. Joggers are, in essence, wearing down their tires unevenly um, without ever taking their car in to get serviced. And service is basically strength training for the most part. Um, so anyway, I'm kind of I'm kind of getting off track from the fat loss thing. But um, so when you jog and when you exercise, the the basic and most fundamental theory of progressive overload has to apply in order for you to see continued results. So that means you have to do a little bit more on week two than what you did on week one in order for you to see continual uh, rates of fat loss or basically just improvement. So when it comes to cardio, when it comes to running, this means that in order to see results and continual progress over time, you're going to need to make your jog harder every single week. The only way to make cardio harder is to increase the duration, the frequency, or the intensity at which you jog. So let's say you jog for 10 minutes on week one. Week two, that might not get you the same results because your body is now adapted to running 10 minutes. So now you have to jog 15 minutes to get the same results that would have been accomplished in 10, or you have to run at a faster pace. So as you become better at running, you need to work harder to elicit the same results in terms of burning calories. So this is true for all forms of exercise. Don't jump on my back just yet. But here's where steady state cardio really falls short compared to something like strength training. So as you increase the duration or the intensity or both, whatever you know, whatever it is that you're doing um, at which you're performing your steady state cardio, your body is going to continue to adapt to make you more efficient at performing cardio. So these adaptations um, can be very positive. There's nothing wrong with the things that happen. So, you know, you're going to have a decreased resting heart rate, which is fantastic for you. You're going to have an increased stroke volume. And if you're not familiar with what a stroke volume is, it's basically the amount of blood um, that your heart pumps with each beat. Okay. So those two things, decreased heart rate and stroke volume usually come hand in hand. So your heart is getting healthier, which is going to lead to an overall healthier you. So I know what you're saying, Chris, where are you going with this? Like, this is all good. I'm going to go do some steady state cardio right now. But the more that you do cardio, the more frequently that you do it, the harder that you do it, the, the, um, the, the longer the duration that you do it, these changes are going to happen. But it's also going to be very possible that your muscles are going to shrink and when it comes to fat loss, muscle atrophy is not a good thing. Now, the reason why your muscles shrink when you do constant cardio every single day for 45 minutes per day um, and you're constantly trying to get better, better, better at cardio is because the oxygen transport within your body is much more efficient 
when you have less muscle mass. So the oxygen that you take in from the air <gasps> into your lungs, through your blood, down into your muscles, it's transferred much more efficiently when there's less muscle for that oxygen to be transported across. So a big, huge bodybuilder is very inefficient in that sense, whereas marathon runners are very, very efficient. So smaller muscles make for easier oxygen transportation and larger muscles require more work. So this isn't efficient. So, you know, your body is basically not doing its job um, when it comes to cardio. So I know what you're about to ask, but why is, the, why is this a, a bad thing? So let's say you go on a six-month exercise binge, and cardio is your go-to exercise for that six months. Um, and that's you're doing nothing else. It's strictly just cardio, and you're sleeping well, and your diet is pretty on point, um, but you're really getting after it with the terms of the cardio. And let's say... Uh, every month you're, you know, you're dropping a decent amount of weight and you're starting to look better. You're losing weight. Your clothes are starting to fit better and whatnot. Um, and after six months you lose 20 pounds and that's amazing. But here's the thing. It's totally possible for you to lose. I, I, I again, and this is just, I'm picking a random number. This is just an example. Don't jump on my back. You lose 20 pounds. Let's say you lose five pounds of muscle in the progress. Okay. So that might not seem like a big deal. Um, but like when you do the numbers and you lose 20 pounds, but you also lose five pounds of muscle, your body composition might not change a whole hell of a lot. Like I'm sure it will improve for sure. But when you're losing muscle mass and you're losing weight at the same time, your body composition, meaning how, what percentage of fat is your body it might not be as optimal as you you want it to. So when you do a good job of holding on to muscle mass and losing weight, so let's say you lost uh, 17 pounds instead of 20, but you didn't lose any muscle mass. Well, your body fat percentage, just by math, is going to drop way further, and you're going to look much more um, tone. God, I hate that word. Then you would had you lost that pound, uh, those extra pounds of muscle. So, I mean, like it's not a huge transformation. Sorry, it's not a huge transformation. It's not a huge uh, number, but I'm pretty sure they say like for every pound of muscle you have on your body, you burn like, oh God, I totally forget, but it's like five, ca five calories. So if you have 100 pounds of muscle on your body, you burn an extra 500 calories per day on top of your uh, resting metabolic rate. So like, okay, yeah, you subtract five pounds of muscle from that and that's an extra 25 calories per day. Per day, that doesn't matter. Per year though, that's huge. That's gonna add up big time and over the course of your life, you're definitely going to to notice it. Um, and I, I wrote an article about fat loss. Um, I guess I could put it in the show notes if anyone wants to read it and I basically explained all this a lot further and there's pictures of me with my shirt off for all you horn dogs out there um so you can see like what i'm talking about but when it comes to overall health and looking the way a majority of clients i'll call them clients and people envision themselves looking after months of hard work body composition is going to trump how much you weigh seven days a week and then twice on sunday so steady state cardio if that's your go-to method and you're really getting after it big time, 
you will lose weight, but I'm not guaranteeing that you will have a huge improvement in body composition. You will weigh less, yes, which is great, but you will not make a huge impact on what percentage of your weight is pure fat by just doing steady state cardio. This is where you run into the skinny fat thing. Like people lose weight, but they don't look really a whole hell of a lot different. You know, like you would never say, hmm, that person looks like they work out, you know? Um, so, and here's where you really run into a problem with losing weight but not changing your your body composition is you do have a very strong chance to become skinny fat. So you're skinny, okay, you lost weight, congratulations, you did burn fat, but you lost muscle too. So you don't really look like someone who works out. Um, and, um, you know, steady state cardio will will help you lose weight and body fat, but you're, you're going to run into the risk of losing precious muscle mass. So let's say, God forbid, you do all this cardio, you lose all this weight and the muscle mass, you become uh, lighter, but not necessarily a improved uh, body composition. So let's say you fall off the bandwagon and now you're 20 pounds lighter than where you were before if you started this health journey, but you're also five pounds lighter in terms of uh, muscle mass. So now if you go on that same health kick again and you perform endless amounts of cardio, well, now you're five pounds lighter in terms of muscle than you were before. So if you do the same thing and you lose let's say 10 pounds this time, and you lose even more muscle mass, well, now you're six, seven, eight pounds of muscle mass behind the eight ball than you were when you very first started. So now you're burning less calories at rest, um, even though you're technically, quote unquote, healthier. And it basically just becomes a never-ending cycle of performing endless amounts of cardio, losing muscle mass, not really changing your body composition, falling off the bandwagon, getting back on the bandwagon, performing endless amounts of cardio, losing even more muscle mass than when you were before. And this is why so many people can get so frustrated and run into so many kind of like yo-yo exercising, yo-yo results type programs is because they're not going about it the right way. When it comes to fat loss, you absolutely need to prioritize sleep and diet and stress management. Like We won't get into that. But when it comes to exercise, strength training, it has to be the number one thing that you're doing. And cardio has to take a back seat to that. You have to preserve your muscle mass as best you can. If not, increase it when you are trying to burn fat. So back to the first example that we did on this myth one. Um, when it comes to toning, what is toning? It's building lean muscle, it's getting stronger, and it's eating better. In no shape or form did I say you should perform endless amounts of cardio when it comes to toning. So uh, that one was a rant uh, for sure. So hopefully all that made sense for the most part. But the gist of it is steady state cardio, if you do it often enough, if you do it hard enough, and if you're constantly you know, applying progressive overload principles, you're just going to run into issues uh, for the most part. And I'm speaking in terms of majority from what I've seen from clients um, over the years. So, you know, take everything I just said with a grain of salt, but um, strength train first. No salt on that. That's 100% saltless 
Um, that's just a fact. So let's wrap things up here. And we'll just do a quick recap. So again, perform high reps with low weights to tone up. That is a bunch of BS. There's no such thing as toning. There's no magical rep range that'll tone your muscles. You really just need to eat better and focus on getting stronger with a bunch of compound movements. Lifting weights is dangerous for children only if you have a jackass supervising them um, in an environment that promotes uh, big egos and competition. Uh, so you got to slow kick or slow cook those kids when it comes to uh, strength training. There's a textbook way to perform every exercise, but um, textbooks are really expensive these days and you don't necessarily have to buy them. So don't pay attention to the textbook way to perform everything. Those are guidelines. They are not concrete rules. So follow the guidelines, but then tweak to find out what's comfortable for you. Do you like narrow stances on some exercises? Do you like to turn your toes out? Do you like to rotate your grip um, externally? Do you like to whatever it may be? Find what works for you because everyone's different based on genetics, based on bone structures, based on injury histories, based on a lot of things. Pre-workout supplements are necessary to have incredible training sessions. Yes, they can help, absolutely, should you rely on them uh, over the long run. No, if you find yourself relying on pre-workout supplements, something in your life sucks and you need to fix it big time, mostly in the form of your sleep or your diet. And then obviously the last one we just talked about, intense jogging or cardio is the best way to burn fat. No, it is not, definitely not. The best way to burn fat is make sure your sleep is under control, make sure you are eating in a calorie deficit and hitting all your macronutrient requirements based on your activity level and strength train to get stronger and this is uh what do we got five more myths after this sure do so we'll get to those next time but again if you guys enjoy the podcast do us a favor leave us a review on apple Podcasts or spotify uh subscribe all of those things really help um you know, tell anyone about it who you think might benefit. Obviously, that helps as well. And then, of course, check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, at gritfitnessandperformance.com. No, that's that's the website. That's not the social media. At the end of like 50 minutes, I lose track of what I'm talking about. Uh, you know what I'm saying, though. So visit us on all those things, uh, at Grit Fitness and Performance. And uh, until then, I will see you guys on the next episode. Adios.